This is episode 167 of That Shakespeare Life. If you like the history you're learning here on our show and want to go even further into the life of William Shakespeare, then consider becoming a member at That Shakespeare Life. Members get exclusive content like video versions of the podcast, animated plays, bonus interviews, activity kits, and more. Become a member today and cook, play, and craft your way through the life of William Shakespeare. Sign up at CassidyCash.com member and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi. I'm Tiffany Stern, Professor of Shakespeare and Early Modern Drama with the Shakespeare Institute at the University of Birmingham. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend, Cassidy Cash. This is quite a standard kind of setup, and it seems to go back... We can trace it back into the, at least the 1570s, and it's probably operating a bit earlier than that. And the way that it works is that you really have a hierarchy within a playing company. So some of the m- members of the playing company are sharers in that company, and they directly take a share of the profits that that company makes. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. When William Shakespeare first arrived in London sometime around the 1580s, James Burbage was already making waves in the early modern performance industry by establishing The Theatre, a playhouse which the Burbages owned. After a fight with the owner of the land on which The Theatre was built, the building itself would be dismantled by the Burbages and William Shakespeare, who helped them clandestinely move the building timber by timber across the Thames to create the theatre known today as The Globe. Today, we refer to The Globe, as well as the first indoor playhouse, The Blackfriars, as Shakespeare's theaters. Of course, the Bard was intimately involved and arguably held a position of leadership in these establishments, but defining terms from his lifetime, like shareholder, leaseholder, and housekeeper, all help us take a closer look at who exactly owned and how that was different from being an owner in a playing company. Our guest this week, Lucy Munro, is the author of the article for King's College London titled Who Owned the Blackfriars Playhouse? And she's here with us today to share the mechanics behind theater and playing company ownership in the 16th and 17th century, as well as to answer the question of whether Shakespeare really did own the theaters we give him credit for today. Lucy Munro is Professor of Shakespeare and Early Modern Literature at King's College London. She teaches, researches, and writes on the plays and poetry of Shakespeare and his contemporaries, theater history, histories of gender, and childhood. Her publications include three books, Children of the Queen's Rebels, A Jacobean Theater History, Archaic Style in the English Literature, 1590 to 1674, and Shakespeare in the Theater, The King's Men, as well as editions of plays, such as Shakespeare's and Wilkins' Pericles, Fletcher's The Tamer Tamed, and several others. She has written extensively and is involved in two collaborative research projects called Before Shakespeare and Engendering the Stage. We will link you to more information on Lucy Munro's work as well as these projects and the books that she's written in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Lucy. Welcome to the show. Hi, it's lovely to be here. 
Could the shareholders set up established between Shakespeare, the Burbages, and other actors in the Lord Chamberlain's men, later the King's men, be considered disruptive innovation for Shakespeare's lifetime, or was a group ownership standard operating procedure for the early modern theatre industry? The group ownership model seems to be quite standard for playing companies in this period. So, well, at least for the playing companies of people like Shakespeare and the Burbages, which were made up of, of adult men who played the, the adult male roles and, and boys or, or teenagers who played the, um, the female roles and the juvenile male roles. The children's companies had a different kind of setup for the, the kind of the mainstream adult playing companies, for want of a better word. This is quite a standard kind of setup. And it seems to go back, we can trace it back into the, at least the 1570s. And it's probably operating a bit earlier than that. And the way that it works is that you really have a hierarchy within a playing company. So some of the m- members of the playing company are sharers in that company, and they directly take a share of the profits that that company makes. Whereas other members of the company would just be hired men, as they were known, and they would be paid a weekly wage. And then the boy actors are apprentices. So through most of their apprenticeship, they wouldn't be earning anything, but they'd be kind of learning on the job. And then it looks from some evidence I've seen that when they get towards the very end of their apprenticeship, they start to be given a wage as well. And so if you're very good and very lucky, what you might do is kind of work your way up to being a sharer in the company. And that's when you can start making a a substantial amount of money from theatre. In the early 17th century, Shakespeare's company, the King's Men, were placed in the the Blackfriars. Lucy, who was it that sent the King's Men to this theatre? And what does it mean for a company to be placed there? Placed is a word that's used in in the 1630s in a a dispute over shareholding in the Blackfriars and Globe playhouses. And it's used by the Burbages. So at this point, it's Cuthbert Burbage, who was Richard Burbage's brother, Richard's widow, Winifred, and Richard and Winifred's son, William. And when they um, reply to a petition by a group of actors, they, they go into this, this mini theatre history, really, in which they describe James Burbage as the, the kind of father of playhouses, the first builder of playhouses, which, which isn't entirely true. And then they talk about um, placing the King's Men in the Blackfriars. The Blackfriars was originally built in the converted in the mid-1590s by James Burbage, who seems to have hoped that he could use it for an adult company, quite probably the Chamberlain's men, his son's company. But the residents in the Blackfriars complain, you know, there's been a history of children's performance in the Blackfriars, but the residents don't seem to want an adult company there. And they complain. And there's a kind of hiatus of, of three or four years. James Burbage dies. Richard Burbage inherits the playhouse and he leases it out to a man called Henry Evans, who is the leader of a children's company. And that situation lasts until 1608. The children's company get into political um, and probably financial trouble as a result of the political trouble. And Evans hands back the lease to Richard Burbage. And Richard Burbage at that point seems to decide that the residents of the Blackfriars will probably be more amenable to having his company there. And so he draws up a new lease and he leases the playhouse to, well, to himself and his brother and a group of other men, most of whom are sharers in the Kingsmen company. So it's really Richard Burbage who places the Kingsmen in the playhouse, um, which he had inherited from his father. 
Lucy's work on the Blackfriars Theater calls attention to the leaseholders of the property as distinct from shareholders in the playing company itself. Lucy, today we identify theater by the container in which the performances take place. I think of the old Vic or even Broadway as examples. However, for Shakespeare's lifetime and for the Kingsmen at the Blackfriars in the early 17th century, was there a distinct separation between the building and the company who performed there as separate entities? It's a great question because it, it's something that seems to work slightly differently across the theatre industry in this period. And the King's Men with the Globe and the Blackfriars are probably the closest alignment that we get in this period between the Playhouse and the company. So the Globe is built in 1599 using at least some of the timbers from the earlier theatre um, up in Shoreditch. And Richard Burbage takes on a lease of land um, in Southwark on the Bankside and then sets up a consortium to build the Globe Playhouse. And he basically issues shares in this project to his fellow actors. And so at that point in 1599, the the building and the company are really closely aligned. You know, the major sharers in the company are also the sharers in, in the building. But there's a really important difference between Playhouse shares and company shares in that if you're an actor in a company and you're a shareholder in that company, when you die, your share goes back to your fellow actors. It's kind of absorbed back into the structure again. Um, and some money is paid out to your to your widow or, or your descendants, um, your um, your heirs for your share in that company. It doesn't get inherited by those heirs. But a playhouse share seems to be inheritable. So it can be left to somebody else. And so what happens with the the relationship between the company and the Globe Playhouse is that over the years, some of the shares move from the original actors when they die to their relatives. And so the shareholding in the th- between the theatres and the companies becomes less closely kind of unified. How did the leaseholders or housekeepers, as Lucy mentions, they're sometimes called, make money from the performances? So the, the leaseholders, the, the housekeepers, which is a term that appears in a, a couple of of 17th century documents take a share of the profits from performances. And the way that it seems to have worked at the Blackfriars and the Globe is that the housekeepers got to take the money that was taken at the entrances to the galleries and the boxes at the Blackfriars and the Globe and the money that was taken at the entrance to the tiring house at the Globe. Um, And these are probably the very high status playgoers who are sitting sort of above the stage itself, who might have gone in through the tiring house. The actors take the money taken at the outer doors. So the actors are taking the the money that's made in the yard um, from the groundlings and the housekeepers are taking the the money from the more prestigious parts of the playhouse or all the more expensive parts of the playhouse. Did actors from the playing companies ever act as leaseholders on the building? I think you mentioned earlier that they might have done, but did Shakespeare himself hold any ownership in the Blackfriars building when he was a part of this going on there? So Shakespeare's a, a sharer in the lease of the Blackfriars. Um, and with a lot of these buildings, there's a distinction to be made between the person who owns the land and or the building and the people who have a share of the lease of that building. And it's a bit different between the Globe and the Blackfriars. So the Blackfriars is, is owned by Richard Burbage. And it's, it's kind of interesting because Burbage was the second son. Cuthbert was his older brother. And James Burbage seems to have specifically left the Playhouse property to his youngest son, the actor, rather than to his older son. He died without, he seems to have died without leaving a will. So we're not 
he seems to have kind of arranged these things before he died. Um, so Richard owns the Blackfriars, and when he takes it back from Henry Evans in 1608, he creates a new lease, and he takes part of the lease for himself, gives part to his brother Cuthbert, and Cuthbert's there through the whole thing. He's never an actor. He's never a playwright never seems to be directly involved in performances, but he's always kind of there on the financial side. Um, so they're two of the share, shareholders in the lease. Um, the others are William Sly, John Hemmings, Henry Condell, William Shakespeare, and a man called Thomas Evans. And Thomas Evans has been a bit of an enigma. It's been really hard to see what his connection with the King's Medal, the Blackfriars, was. But he has the same surname as Henry Evans. Um, and so it was kind of dispute, debated whether he was a member maybe of Evans's family, maybe there's some kind of sweetener in giving up the lease that Henry Evans gets to nominate someone to take a share of the profits. And some some documents that I've been looking at quite recently, which nobody else seems to have really looked at before, absolutely confirm that Thomas was Henry's son. And so Henry is given a share in the lease or, or rather... Henry gets to nominate Thomas to take a share in the lease, as I've said, as a kind of sweetener for giving up the, the Blackfriars lease. But Shakespeare's there alongside the other King's men. He's there as somebody who's a shareholder in the lease of the playhouse, and he's gaining from those profits. So if the Blackfriars had the same structure in the 1630s financially um, and in the 1610s, Shakespeare probably would have been getting two cuts. So he'd been getting a cut as an actor, probably in the lower part of the theatre, um, and also a cut as a shareholder in things like the galleries and the boxes. When we talk about the Globe Theatre, we often call it Shakespeare's Globe. Lucy, does understanding the concept of shareholders in Shakespeare's lifetime challenge the idea that Shakespeare himself owned the Globe? Was there a single owner like Richard Burbage owned the Blackfriars? Was there someone who owned the Globe? The Globe's ownership situation is is really complicated so i think i think thinking about shareholders does challenge the idea that shakespeare himself owned the globe and to a certain extent nobody really owned it ultimately the land was owned by well first by a man called nicholas brend um, who died in 1601 and then by his son matthew brend and matthew was a child when he inherited the land on which the globe was built and so his estate was controlled by his his relatives um, for a number of years. So the Brens own the land, but they don't, don't own the building. And this is something that underlines the history of the theatre, that the reason why the, the Burbages were able to move timbers from the theatre was because the landlord up in Shoreditch, Charles Allen, didn't own the timbers of the theatre. Um, he only owned the land. So the land is owned by one one person inherited by his son. The playhouse is built by Burbage and the consortium, and they're the people who share in the lease. So it's really a kind of composite ownership, but it's ultimately controlled by the Brens because if at any point they had decided that they didn't want to renew the lease, they could have done. And by the time you get to the 1620s and 30s, there are quite prolonged negotiations around the leases, which then in the 1630s leads to a lawsuit between Matthew Brend and the then shareholders in the Globe at that point, which still includes some of the Burbages. 
Lucy writes that one actor named William Alster was granted a share in the Blackfriars in 1611 and a share of the Globe in 1612. Lucy identifies these shares as, quote, playhouse shares. Lucy, does this mean that William Alster owned a part of the theatre? So he would have owned parts of the lease in the same way that Shakespeare did. So he... Osler's really interesting. He's a, an actor who joins the King's, well, seems to join the, join the King's Men around the time when they gain the Blackfriars Playhouse. And he becomes quite prominent. He died very young in 1614, so he's probably less well known than he should be. And really, the King's Men seem to fast track him into not just company sharing, but also playhouse sharing. And they actually increase the number of shares in um, the playhouses in order to be able to to issue one to William Osler. So they effectively kind of pull the shares back together, redivide them, and then issue them again with one going to Osler. Lucy writes that three actors in The King's Men, Benfield, Swanson, and Pollard, submitted a petition to be shareholders in the Blackfriars Theatre, but were denied. Lucy, what are the records we have today that show this petition, and why were they denied a piece of this? Was there a process to becoming a shareholder where only some of the actors could become a part owner? Well, one of the things that, that Benfield, Swanson and Pollard are complaining about really is the lack of a process. So they say that they've been members of the King's Men for a long time. They've been shareholders in the company. And they've always kind of been promised that at some point they would be allowed to enter into being shareholders in the playhouses. But this has never happened. So at this point in the mid-1630s, they decide that they're going to petition the Lord Chamberlain, who has ultimate responsibility for the theatre industry, and see if they can get admitted into shares um, in the playhouse. And they do this on grounds of, of, of equity, you know, fairness, that they have spent all this time kind of labouring for the company, only to see a lot of the fruit of their labours going into the pockets of the, the leaseholders who by this point, some of them aren't particularly connected with the playing company. So they include John Hemmings' son, William, um, who wrote a couple of plays, but you know, wasn't an actor. So they have this case that they, they ought, to be, um, ought to be admitted, which is rebuffed by the Burbages and by John Shank, who's another man who owned um, a number of shares in the playing company by this point. He'd been buying them up from other shareholders, including um, William Hemmings. And the Burbages and Shank make all sorts of arguments about why they should be able to keep those profits. There's a very emotive argument about not letting Winifred Burbage, Richard Burbage's widow, starve in her old age by taking the profits away from her. John Shank emphasizes that he's been 30 years in royal service as an actor. And you know, how could this happen to him? But the interesting thing is that ultimately a couple of John Shank's shares do seem to have been taken from him, or at least were planned to be taken from him. So Benfield and Swanson and Pollard, you know, are rebuffed, but ultimately do seem to have got to a position where at least something of the the justice of what they were asking was actually acknowledged, which is really interesting. The Burbage family can be considered a kind of royal family when it comes to describing 16th century theater. Obviously, we've covered here their massive ability to set up the Blackfriars and the Globe. But Lucy, when you write that members of the Burbage family were the grand landlords, which is a term used in a 1643 pamphlet to describe owners of the Burbage's position, the status meant that the Burbage's controlled the playhouse as well as the profits. And I'm just curious, why were the Burbage's able to set up this kind of theater dynasty and Shakespeare really wasn't. I mean, there's no continuation of this for his family. And why is that different? 
I think the Burbages, to a certain extent, are in the right place at the right time. And they also have a, a real entrepreneurial kind of instinct, which I think goes beyond anything that Shakespeare had. So James Burbage in, in the 1570s goes into partnership with a man called John Brain to build the theatre. And John Brain was a grocer at the start of the process, was relatively well off and ended up putting most of what he had into the theatre project. And Burbage outlives him. So um, Brain dies um, in, I think, the 1580s. His widow wages a legal campaign over a number of years to try and cling on to her half of the playhouse. But the Burbages ultimately emerge with sole control of the theatre. And owning a playhouse is where you make the the really big money in this period. It's something that Philip Henslow at the Rose, you know, also spotted quite early on, you know, in his partnership with Edward Alain, ultimately means that that Edward Alain can found an entire charity down in, in Surrey, I guess to some extent as a way of perpetuating his own memory in a way that went beyond his his absolutely undoubted fame as an actor. So the Burbages get in on, on, on the real estate, really. Richard Burbage's ownership of the Blackfriars is kind of crucial. So he wasn't dependent on a leaseholder being amenable because he was the one who owned the building. And it's quite telling that the Burbages hang on to the Blackfriars until the 1650s, um, quite a way into the period when acting and performing plays has been restricted during the, the Civil War and the Commonwealth. And it's only actually sold on in, in 1651, I think, at a point when it must have looked as if the theatre would maybe never be revived in the same form as it had been. So, But Shakespeare, I think, is different, that he, um, he only, owes share, only owns shares in leases. He doesn't own shares in the real estate itself. And that makes it slightly different. And there's quite a lot of speculation about what happens to Shakespeare's Playhouse shares. They're not mentioned specifically in his will, but then Playhouse shares quite often aren't in actors' wills. That's because his shares would have been absorbed back into the theatre, correct? Well, his his company shares would have been, but his Playhouse shares were a different matter. So he could oh, have okay. he could have sold up his Playhouse shares, you know, to other members of the company at some point before his death, and and some of the the scholarship you read around Shakespeare's so-called retirement will make that argument that he he retires to Stratford and he kind of sells up everything in London or he sells up his kind of theatre stakes in London. The other possibility is that they went to either his wife Anne as part of the third of his estate that she'd have been entitled to or that they went to his daughter Susanna with the residue of the estate and either Anne or Susanna may have sold them on um, and there's a couple of comparison points we might look at um, from women who inherited shares in the Globe and the Blackfriars. So Anne Phillips was a widow of an actor called Augustine Phillips, and she inherits his shares in the Globe Playhouse. And she ultimately, she and her not very um, trustworthy second husband seem ultimately to have sold them to John Hemmings kind of later in the 1610s. And then there's another woman called Cecilia Brown, and she inherits William Sly's Playhouse shares. And she seems to have returned them to Richard Burbage um, or sold them or was, was recompensed for, for surrendering them. And at that point, I think Burbage is quite keen to keep the shareholding quite, quite tight around those playhouses. 
I know we would love to explore more about this topic. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? So one of my favorite resources for looking at this kind of thing is um, a website developed by the Folger Shakespeare Library and a group of its partners called Shakespeare Documented, which has images of original documents and transcriptions and commentaries by theatre historians. And it has sections on um, Shakespeare as player and um and on the playhouses. So you can actually look at the the original documents of the detailed theatre leases, um, all of this kind of material, including the sharer's paper dispute that we've been talking about. That is a fascinating resource. I use Shakespeare Documented all the time, and we will definitely link to that in the show notes for today's episode. So we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. When I was thinking about this this afternoon, I was very much in the headspace of thinking about the Blackfriars and thinking about playhouses. So I think that I would take one of my favourite theatre history resources that isn't Shakespeare documented, which is a book called English, well, it's a very dry title, um, English Professional Theatre 1530 to 1660. And it's edited by Glyn Wickham, Herbert Berry and William Ingram. Um, sadly, only William Ingram is, is is still with us, and it's a compendium of of primary materials about the history of the, the theatre, um, organised into sections on the different playhouses, sections on on what a what a kind of player's life might have been like. There's a little kind of case study of of Augustine Phillips' kind of playing career, and if you're geeky about early modern theatre history, like I am, it's it's a brilliant thing to just dip into. Yes, which we are here. So I love this selection. You'd be well set up on your deserted island for sure. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? So I'm part of a project called Engendering the Stage, which is a collaboration between myself and some colleagues at Roehampton University in the UK, um, Clement Manus, um, and Erin Julian, and and two PhD students, um, Melanie Harrison um, and Oliver Lewis. And we work in partnership with colleagues at McMaster University in Canada, um, Peter Cockett and Melinda Goff. And it's a project that's all about histories of gendered performance. So we're thinking about female performance. We're thinking about the ways in which masculinity and femininity are represented on stage. We're thinking about what we can recover of the histories of trans or non-binary performers. And also thinking about the nuts and bolts of women's investment in in the theatre industry as well. Um, and we're doing well. We're trying to do archival work at the moment. We've been restricted by COVID. Yes. Oh wow. Well. Every opportunity we get, we're kind of diving off to the national archives and uh, trying to see what we can unearth. I'm sure. I'm sure you're excited to get back in there. And there are links we can provide in the show notes to this project of engendering the stage, which we'll include. So make sure you hang on to the end to uh, to find those and check those out. In, um, and explore this really exciting project. Thank you so much, Lucy Monroe, for being here today and walking us through the history of the Blackfriars and the Globe and exactly what it was like for Shakespeare owning those playhouses. This has been a fun conversation. Make sure you stop by the show notes for today's episode for even more Shakespeare history. We pack archival images over there along with special tidbits and bonuses that we all pack into the show notes. It's a great place to connect with Lucy as well as a wonderful place to begin when you want to explore further into today's topic. We link to resources she's recommended as well as some extras that we were able to find as well. So 
tons of history and resource recommendations over in the show notes. Stop by and find all of that at CassidyCash.com slash episode 167. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP167. Don't forget, there's a video version of our show today available inside the members area of That Shakespeare Life. The video version lets you join us at the table with our guest and features archival images, woodcuts, and other visual material to go along with the interview so you can see the history right as we're discussing it on the show. Along with video versions of the podcast, members are our VIPs around here, which means you get our very best content, including digital resources like worksheets and historical maps, along with special member perks like the opportunity to participate in the show by submitting questions for upcoming guests and all members get a 20% discount on everything in our online store. Explore all the benefits of being a member and sign up today at CassidyCash.com slash member. That's CassidyCash.com slash member. I'll see you inside. That's it for this week. Thank you for being here. I'm Cassidy Cash and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.